Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cross Pods podcast. I'm Lydia Shampole, and this week we will be playing you an episode of the Forbidden Apple podcast. The Forbidden Apple is a unique platform where they explore the connection between queer people and religion. It is hosted by Melissa, a former Orthodox Jew, and Pelayo, a Spanish-raised Catholic, and they explore what gives the queer community purpose and meaning. LGBTQ people have been told that they cannot be religious and queer. Not only that, but in our society, religion is often used as a way to push LGBTQ people to the margins. These two hosts want to give a voice to those individuals and discuss how they find meaning in life, what faith means to them, and if they can keep any religious values or practices in their lives. You can follow them on Instagram at the Forbidden Apple Podcast and sink your teeth into the Forbidden Apple Podcast every Sunday. Okay, let's jump right in. to the Forbidden Apple podcast, where we explore the relationship between queer people and religion. They say faith can move mountains, and we want to know what faith means to you. Join our conversation as we discuss overcoming prejudices, find common ground, and celebrate our differences. A former Orthodox Jew and a Spanish-raised Catholic meet weekly and sink our teeth into the Forbidden Apple. The Forbidden, the forbidden Apple. Hello, everybody. And welcome to another episode of The Forbidden, Forbidden Apple. Apple. I'm Melissa Weiss. And I'm Pelayo Alvarez. And, and today we have a special guest. We're here today with Jorge, who comes from a prominent evangelical and political family. Jorge is a minister of worship arts in the Church of the Village here in New York. He's passionate about worship that brings people together across the device of ethnicity, social class, sexuality, age, and gender identity. How are you doing, Jorge? I'm great. It's Thank so you for happy. inviting me. I know. It's so same happy here. Happy. <laughs> I don't know why I say Jorge. It's Jorge. So. Jorge? Yeah, but I have learned to receive many pronunciations of my name all as valid. So, okay. so I, I hear the accent of the of the Dominican Republic. Yes, which absolutely. Is a different from the Spanish one. Absolutely. Um, how was in the Dominican Republic growing up, dealing with your sexuality, and especially being from a prominent evangelical and political family? How did you feel about all that? That's a big question. Thank you. Well, it's interesting because I think I lived at the same time in a hypersexualized environment and an environment where sexuality was highly controlled. What I mean by that is that in the society at large, heterosexuality is, is in your face constantly. You are in school and I mean, that goes for for, for most people places in the Western world, but it's kind of, on, I believe, in hyperdrive uh, in places uh, uh, like Dominican Republic and the Caribbean. I'll tell you an example. I, I went to school actually in with Jesuits, so Catholic, and even in that environment, the conversations around all of, this, all of these young people, part of them involved the ways that their parents, uh, this is for boys, would elicit or figure out or what's a better word even provoke the first sexual experiences and take them to a brothel whoa yes there was like a famous brothel called Erminia and I heard stories of you know parents these are these are all upper middle and upper class kids of their father taking them there to like you know to initiate them sexually and it, it part of Dominican general Dominican culture is you know this idea that we call the el tigre, the male who fools everybody. So the idea of having multiple sexual partners, but these are not casual, although that happens too. But on top of that, so it's a very sexualized environment mm-hmm. in in a way towards heterosexualized environment, I uh-huh. should say. But then at the same time, I was I was growing up in the evangelical church, Los Templos Bíblicos, the Plymouth Brethren. And in that environment, it's like, uh, you know, like the opposite of that, meaning 
in some of the churches, fortunately not mine, but in many of them, men on one side, women sitting on the other side. In my church, women wearing veils in worship, particularly for the communion service. One of the saddest moments was in this local congregation that I was a part of called Sala Evangelica, the Templo Biblico environment, one of the young, young women was, became pregnant out of wedlock. And we all knew it. And there was a meeting where she was excommunicated. Mm. Now, you, you read these things in books, like excommunication. And it was to their credit. They tried to do it with some sensitivity. But you can imagine the impact of that on, 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 a, on a young mind where you, you, know, you see that. Also, all of this, I have, you know, my father constantly saying to, particularly to my three older sisters and to the to my fourth younger sister also, I, you know, I would rather you die rather than marry a non-Christian. Like that wow. kind of... Oh, that's extreme. Wow. It is very, in hindsight, it's very extreme. When you mm. live in it, it's, yeah. it's interpreted and intended almost as love. Which is, I think, one of the one of the big conundrums that we have when we're speaking around these issues, and I'm going to call it the conundrum of intentionality, meaning something that is very harmful can be offered with the best of intentions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we sometimes we confuse that and we address intention when what we need to address is really outcome. You know, look at the outcome of it without necessarily judging the intentions of the person. Because I do believe that when my father spoke those words, he had the best intention of giving his daughters the best life. Interestingly, he would never say that to me as a male or to my brother. It was only to the girls, you know. Now, if I had challenged that, he would have said it, but it it didn't rise naturally Uh because, of course, female sexuality needed to be policed uh, in very, very strong ways. So... Let alone that, that's that's the general sexuality part. So this is, you know, hyper-heterosexuality, very controlled, also heterosexuality. And then homosexuality is at, like, at the edge of all of that. There was one cousin that, that we had. He died um, a few years ago. And he was sort of like a notorious gay person in the country. But as a youngster, I never met him until I was, I don't know, I mean, I was out by the time that I actually, but we heard stories about him. For me, all the stories that I started hearing about, oh, when your cousin so-and-so, you know, dressed like a girl, you know, it's like, you hear all these things. And the connotation is not just negative. It's something that goes beyond negative. It goes into the grotesque. Homosexuality, growing up, was not even spoken of much other than as this grotesque thing mm-hmm. that could not ever exist mm-hmm. you know, among us. Like, that's impossible. So for me, experiencing my first attraction, erotic attraction that I recall, was towards a teacher. And I was in, I was in high school already, so pretty late. I always knew that I was different uh, from a very young age. Very, I knew kind of very, very young that I was different. But I I would not name it in terms of sexuality. What was the feeling of being different? It's hard to, it's hard to name. I I tend to put four years, the the age of four, as the moment when it happened. So interesting. We just had someone um, on the last episode this Sunday that mentioned that for her, she's a transgender person. Yeah. It was also the year four yeah. when she fell. Well, there you saying go. how common it is in trans stories, but now maybe it's also common in like other queer sexuality and Sexual- gender. Oh, wow, that's fascinating. You know, I, I think that's an age, and I have no scientific proof yes. of this, but <laughs> I, I think that's an age where the self starts understanding itself around the judgment of others. So I remember one time that I was, it was January 6th, and I was around four years old. And I realized there's the custom in, in um, parts of Latin America where the gifts are not received on December 25th, mm-hmm. but on January 6th, Epiphany, the Three Kings Day. 
And it was a very big deal in the Lockport family. Our parents would fill a room and there were six of us, six children, and the room would be full. I mean, like like halfway up in the walls with gifts for the whole year. So they were very lavish in that day. And, and my father would create some sort of game about picking up, you know, you pick and somebody, you would pick a random thing and you would read, this one is for so-and-so. And, you know, we're all anticipating for the one that comes for me. And once I hear, this one's for Georgie, which is my nickname. So I would be in great anticipation. But then when I would open the gift, it would be something that I know, that I know my parents knew I didn't like. Like a weapon, you know, like a pistol or a basketball or like toy soldiers. Mm-hmm. And that was not my sensibility. And they knew it. And somehow I picked up the message and I'm ascribing it to that day, but I'm pretty sure that I'm just assigning it to that day, that it came through many sources and it maybe got crystallized that day, that there was something wrong with me and that they were trying to change me. I just put, and I became, you can even see it in pictures of me. I went from being a very outgoing, fun-loving approachable and approacher kind of child. I mean, my favorite picture is me eating dirt and smiling. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was that kind of kid. Yeah. And then you start seeing how I become more uncomfortable with my body, uh, more uncomfortable with everything. And like a judgment is upon me. And that's the best way that I can name that feeling of feeling different. Mm. The difference was not so much an internal difference, but a a difference perceived because of the judgment of others. Mm -hmm. And then started the comments. The comments like father would say, I've said my father a lot. Other people would say it too, but it just, his voice is coming to me. We have to give this kid snake oil. Uh, A snake oil meaning something to butch him up Uh. because he's too passive or Mm. something like that. Or my father telling me, you have, you know, you have to do a boxing, punching bag, you know, every day a little bit so that you can become a man. So that means I'm not a man. Yeah. You know, so all you, you feel the perception of others, you know, going onto this artistic, effeminate child, mm-hmm. because I was kind of like that. I mean, I often wonder if I did not butch myself up you know, beyond recognition, beyond salvation, because all of my late childhood and puberty and adolescence was a huge long effort to butch myself up in response to that and also to defend myself because I learned very quickly that if I did not do that, I could be the victim of bullying. So this is, so uh, I don't know the, the age, but very early. And I came home and I had had a little bit of a row with, uh, with another student and I defended myself. But when I told it to my parents, I could feel their pride that I had gone into a fight. So what did I do? This is my, 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 my inner artist already blooming. I exaggerated a bit, you know, and I, all of a sudden I broke his nose, you know, like, and they believed it and they were, they wanted desperately to believe it, you know, because that's another thing. People who reject people sometimes have actually love in their hearts that leads, you know, like they don't, they want their child, my parents wanted their child to be what they would call a normal child. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's all they understood and all they knew. Yeah. So I exaggerated that. I think this is the first time in my life that I have owned to exaggerating that, that story. And it became yeah. like a story that my father would tell with great pride. Like my son, he hit, you know, and broke his nose. <laughs> I didn't break anyone's nose. No, I did defend myself in that first day in school. Can we go back to you yeah, saying about your first attraction? was to a teacher. A teacher, Tell us about that. Okay, I will say something about that. It was very interesting because it was was a very physical attraction. Uh And I just could not get my eyes out of this teacher or could, could not stop thinking about him. And I was conscious enough to understand that I had no attraction to his character. 
I've had attraction to other teachers' characters uh-huh. and to their, you know, wisdom or scholarship or goodness uh-huh. or a thousand things. But this was just physical, mm-hmm. purely physical. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I just didn't know what to do with it yeah. because it was like, my first thought was not, this is wrong or like this is, I didn't have the words or this is like gay or right. this is homosexuality. My first thoughts, if I can recover them, were, this is uncomfortable. I'm out of control. I, you know, I, I control everything in my life so well. And all of a sudden, here's a feeling that I cannot control. Uh-huh. And it drove me really, literally crazy. Then after a while, then I started to realize, oh, and this is a man, mm. you know, not only a man, a very manly man, mm-hmm. you know. So down the road, then I, I said, oh, I have a problem, but I can fix it. So I started a program of fixing myself. Mm. I would pray every day, every day, you know, I would start the day praying. Did also involve fasting. You know, once I learned what fasting was, then other things that I did was I told one person, I told eventually um, in the context of I want to change. Mm-hmm. And this was the person who was my, a, a, a good friend of mine, still a good friend. And basically it was just like, you know, accompany me in this, you know, in this journey. And then he gave me some recommendations that I followed, like, you know, try to speak with a deeper voice, oh, you wow. know, things like that. Try to walk this particular way. To, to amp up your masculinity. Yeah. Somehow. Do not, don't use your hands when you talk. Like all of that. And, you know, they were very well-intentioned advice. Yeah. And I followed it to the best of my ability. Oh. As I said earlier, I, I am sometimes afraid that I may have butched myself up beyond recognition. Meaning that the essence uh-huh. of me, the playful essence of me, yeah. doesn't rise immediately as it used to mm-hmm. when I was a child it yeah. takes it takes a little long you know uh, due to these societal pressures yeah, yeah. so wow. I know this is a big jump but like I do feel that I, I feel that energy from you now yeah. how was like the journey to reconnecting with that I was gonna say that actually that I do feel that you have this playfulness, playfulness yeah. for sure yeah so how did I reconnect, reconnect with that I think I came to the U.S. to to finish college. And it was here in the U.S. that I had my first actual sexual experience with a man. And it was not pleasant. It was more like I wanted to just get done with it. Uh-huh. You know, just like do it. Like uh-huh. just like, oh, my God. Like, uh, And then I did it. Then I, I, I had, a, by then I had developed this practice that I had no secrets in my life. At least one person needed to know everything. Because I, I believe that, you know, we're as um, sick as our secrets. So I had that as a spiritual practice. So I went and told someone immediately this, this happened. And then I didn't have, it didn't happen again for a very long time. But that, that started me. I mean, while I was there, I started hearing like conversations. It's hard for me to name when was like the first yeah. time that I saw kind of like a positive angle of my gayness. I don't remember the first time. I have many, many moments. But by then, this was a very bad experience, you know. I eventually decided to go to a counselor and also and also talk about it. And this counselor was not affirming, but was not condemning either. He was more like in, in the listening mode, which was rare for the environment where I was, a very, you know, deeply yeah. evangelical environment. Which was this environment in the United States? In the United States. So I am studying in California, at Azusa Pacific University, by, by this time, when I have my first, I decide to have my first sexual experience mm-hmm. and just get, get it over with, you know. And you're continuing on in the in evangelical? Right. I am, I am actually studying Bible in, okay. the, in college. So I'm studying Bible with mm-hmm. a minor in business. And I was actually scheduled to go to seminary. And I was accepted into Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California. Mm. And then my father called that he needed me to come back because um, the circumstances needed me to work with him. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, all kinds of things happened. So, but the, maybe, you know, who knows? Maybe that counselor was the first person because although it was in this environment where he could have very easily, actually the expectation was condemnation, mm-hmm. his engagement was just purely from a listening point of view you know which was I think helpful you yeah know? so I came to New York 
and, and started work. And this is my first contact with the United Methodist Church where I work now. Now, my heritage from my grandfather is Methodist. So unknownst to me, I had a lot of Methodism already deep inside that has flourished, you know, but that's for another podcast, baby. Um, but how did you find it? Well, um, it was amazing. I mean, God sent me in a miraculous way to to a, to a, to work with a great pastor. His name was uh, was Pedro Piron, and one of the most loving people. He was the last person I came out to. Piron was a remarkable human being. Just give you a measure of how remarkable he he was. I was. I had a lot of pride, you know, and a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. And we had come from a meeting where I had been not unkind verbally in my ways that I can be unkind. And at the same time, you cannot call me unkind. So I say it with very nice words, but I'm basically destroying you. I had done that, done that in the meeting. And on the way back home, I, I used to live with him at that time and, you know, and, and his family. I kept waiting. You know, I had all my arguments in my head to, to rebut him when he called me, you know, into, into question how I, why I was so unkind. And there was, he was just silent and very, very nice and kind to me. And so I couldn't use my arguments. You know? <laughs> so we go, we go to sleep. Next, this is on a Saturday night. Next day, it's Sunday. And I get up to go to the bathroom around 6 a.m. And he is in his living room. And he's shining the last one of my shoes. Just shining it. And I see all of my shoes lined up. And he's shining that person. And he didn't have to say anything. He was teaching me that true leadership is comes in service. That's all. You know, and I got it immediately. He knew that I would get it. And I got it immediately. So whenever I want to, <laughs> even wow. yesterday, want to like, go to that place of like, I know better, have my ship on the shoulder because I know and because I'm right. I get to control the situation and to, you know, put you in your place. I am reminded of that and uh, and the message is clear. No, my call is not to be right. My call is not to show you that I'm right. My call is not even to make sure that you think the way I do. My call is to love you and serve you and shine mm. your shoes. Well, that's, That's what transforms the world. You know, yeah, yeah. the other part doesn't transform anything. Yeah. You're a minister by then. So I've always been in ministry mm -hmm. of some kind, but I chose to not be ordained in the in the United Methodist Church. I I started the process. I had, you know, put in the papers. I had, like, an advisor. And at that time, I was a minister of music at First Spanish Church in Corona, Queens. And by then, I had already come out to myself and I was going to meetings at the GLBTQ center on 13th street and those meetings were, were helping me you know and I was meeting other gay people so this was gayness but not connected to religion you know not mm -hmm. connected to spirituality at this moment in time so I am I'm walking on I'm right at the corner of 7th and 13th when a member of the corona church in a car sees me and stops and says, hey, Georgie, can I offer you a ride? And without thinking, I said, no, I'm just going here to the gay and lesbian center. You know, but I wasn't out. So once I spoke those words, I realized I cannot live under the radar. This is not my calling. I cannot live under the radar. I affirm those who do their ministry under the radar, and many are my friends, and I affirm it that this is... It can be a choice and it can be a calling even in some in some settings. But I knew it wasn't a call for me. And you know, and I so I decided at that moment you could not, you know, be in the ordained ministry and really be out. Now things have changed, you know, quite a bit. So I may consider it. But this is why I decided not to become a formal pastor, although I, I do ministry all the time. And 7 and 13 is where the church of the village is. Interestingly, I was right in front, but I didn't know that at that time there was Metropolitan Duane Church, but I didn't even know that that was like a gay affirming church, which wow. it was at that time, you know. If I had known, I wish, you know, in hindsight, it would have been so awesome to come out I mean, it was great to come out and to get the help of the center. But if I had the, the, the help of my own community, 
I, I remember the, ten, the, the first time I told my pastor, like a person that is my pastor, about being gay. All that this person could do was say, let's go and pray together. So we went to the altar of the church and we kneeled down. And then says, you know, you know, she um, she prayed or he prayed. God, you know, you know, your servant Jorge, you know how amazing he is and the ministry that he does. You know that he's struggling right now. Please be with him. That kind of prayer. Mm-hmm. And that was the end of the conversation. So it it was like it never. The my pastor never brought it back. And this is something that I tell pastors all the time. The the image that I use is this. I say. If you see a sheep that is so hurt and so bleeding that it cannot even speak, it doesn't have even the power of speech, but you know it's bleeding, do not use, they haven't told me, as the excuse to not engage. You know already. And it is your ethical responsibility to figure out in delicate ways that do not violate the person mm-hmm. to create the opportunity for the person to tell you. Yeah. So how do you do it? Well, obviously you don't do it in public. Mm-hmm. You know, you you create a relationship, you strengthen that relationship, you invite the person to come out. You start throwing references here and there about, you know, people like me who are gay and are in ministry. Yeah. You know, and recently I was in, in, in Europe teaching and a pastor uh, from Denmark has this sort of case. And I said, well, here's an idea. Here's an amazing book. By the way, it's an amazing book. It's called Queer Virtue. And it's about not just toleration or acceptance. It's about understanding our sexual orientation as a gift, mm-hmm. as something that is not just positive, but amazing and a powerful contribution to the church, to the gospel, to spirituality, to the world. So I said, you could talk to this person and this no, this is not a fib, it's not a lie. You can say, listen, I am faced with ministering to trans people, to gay people, to lesbians, to bi people. And I just I need to I need to to train myself better. Would you read this book together with me? Can we read it together? And I need a companion so that I can learn better. Now, this is the case where the person has already come out. She knows the person's, you know, partner. But there is a reticence in the person to be engaged in full ministry Mm. because of being gay. You had mentioned that you were trying to heal yourself with the fasting and the praying. When did you come to, you had told us this amazing (laughs) experience, so I want you to tell Mm -hmm. our listeners. Of course. Tell us about that. When you came, when you found peace and, and started to celebrate. Yes, 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 yes. The journey from that moment of wanting to change myself mm-hmm. to a place of acceptance, it's a long, and I will always name it as an ongoing journey. I compare these journeys of the soul to an onion that you peel. And the onion, it's bigger, you know, it takes longer. And then it gets smaller and mm-hmm. smaller and smaller. So now it, I may have about on acceptance maybe once a year but it used to be every second (laughs) you know and then it was like um once a week and then you know once a month and so on but there's some 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 like pivotal moments of that that i'm i would call them even conversion uh, experiences and i'm going to name a few of them the first one that comes to my mind involves a friend who lives in florida i had been asked to lead uh, worship for a group of GLBTQ affirming Methodists. Uh, they're called the Reconciling Ministries Network. And they were having their big convention that they do every year. This time it was in Denton, Texas. I was barely out. But by a series of miracles, literally, when I got the invitation, it was clear that I had to say yes. So I go, you know, and when I get there, there's this young woman who comes running to me. Are you Jorge Lockwood? And I go like, yes, I'm Jorge Lockwood. And she says, oh, my name is Raquel. And you know, I came here because of you. And I was like, oh. And she said, well, I saw your name in the brochure and I'm also Dominican. And I don't know many, any other gay Dominicans, you know. Uh, now we know, both of us know a lot of them, but at that time, you know, this is years and years ago. So I came because of you like that. So great, we become friends and so on. 
there's this practice that they have in this convention that they call miracle minutes, where they just open the space for people to name a miracle that has happened in their lives at the beginning of their session of the plenary worship. And Raquel comes to me and says, oh, wouldn't it be cute if we give a miracle minute? And I said, great, that's super cute. You know, by then, you know, I've led these people in worship. So, you know, they've seen me lead their music. I mean, it, it's, yeah, there's a good rapport. And there's, I don't know, 500 persons there, let's say. So we go up and she goes first. And she starts saying, telling the story. And there I was in Massachusetts and my pastor gave me this brochure about this event. And I was like so discouraged. But then I saw this person and he's Dominican. And I said, oh my God, there's another. And then she pauses and then asks me, are you out? <laughs> like, but the microphone picks it up. And then I say, well, now I am. <laughs> and of course, you know, all 500 people erupted in joy. So this is my political coming out story. Like, I did not choose it in a way, but a lot of things led me to it. But my life is like that most of the time. And it's a very joyful moment that I remember. Now, in terms of the, of the personal, particularly the, yeah. the prayer life part, there's, there's a moment, the, the first early moment, this is one that I did not share with okay. you, but this is way early on. I think this is the first time that I accepted myself and understood myself as accepted and loved by God. I was praying, and I was, again, asking God, why? And, and the question was not, why don't you change me? It, it was like, why don't you speak to me about this? Because you speak about everything else, but you don't speak about this piece. And we've been at this for many years. And I, I need an answer. I need an answer. And an inner voice spoke to me and said, basically, well, I'm not saying anything because there's nothing to be said. Just like that. And I, I don't know if you understand it, but I understood it. And like in a way that it's not a big deal. It's, it's, it, well, it's, it's more like it's what it is. It. It's exactly, what it is. Exactly. That's what I receive is like, there's nothing to be said. This is who you are. Uh-huh. You know, but it was, I could not express it in words, uh-huh. but it was like, you know, when you have a person who's been very alive in the spirit since I was very young. So I had a very, and have a very strong prayer life that's very instinctual. Mm. And I felt that for everything else that I prayed, there was a response. There was, mm. the response doesn't need to be like a verbal response, but there was a something. Mm-hmm. But when it came to this, I did not receive either approval or judgment from God, ever. It was, a, all the judgment came from, from other places. Yeah. And at that moment, it was just like, I was like, oh my God. Like a moment of peace. A peace came over me. So later on, I had met an amazing woman. And I had zero erotic feelings. This is not how I am created. And I just became consumed with the thought, wouldn't it be so easy? I mean, we love each other. We just don't have erotic love for each other, but we love each other. We would be like a power couple. I mean, imagine the children we could raise. Imagine the ministry we could have. It started depressing me. Mm. And I started praying and I said, God, you know, I have been faithful. Can't you just make an exception and just like, you know, change me? And then God says, of course I can. I will do it right now. And it was like, what? You know, and I had this vision of myself as like a big barrel with metal ribs. I don't know if you know that kind that has like wood and metal mm-hmm. ribs around yeah. it. And I saw this hand, you know, in my imagination, the hand of God reaching out and taking one of the ribs, um, you know, the gay rib in uh-huh. my imagination, taking it out. And I had a sense of relief for less than a second. And then to my horror, all of the other ribs and the pieces of wood started drifting into the air. And I started yelling, no, no, no. And it was like very clear that we, I, all of us, are one integral being. You cannot take one piece out. And, you know, my creativity is linked to my gayness. Mm. You know, my spirituality is linked to my gayness. The way that I relate to family, everything is linked to, to the other. Mm-hmm. And that was a powerful moment that was not so much of acceptance, but of even integration, mm. uh, if I can name that. And from that moment on, my gayness 
was not a neutral situation, like, well, you know, I'm gay in the same way that you're straight and we're all okay. No, it was special and a gift. So I love that story. Yeah, so much. yeah. So much. <laughs> I have to tell you, I actually shared it with, with oh, good. people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Such a um, clear and beautiful way of explaining how you're one person yeah. and sexuality, you can't just hide parts of yourself. You can't fully function and yes. fully be beautiful yes. as a whole human being. Yes. I love that story so much. And it's so visual. Like, it's, it's like the second time I hear uh, about it, and you can. I was uh, a delegate for the special general conference of the United Methodist Church. And this during, you know, it was a conference that was very, very painful because it was, you know, geared to, to trying to make a decision around the life and witness and presence of GOBTQI persons in the United Methodist Church. Uh -huh. You know, their their fullest inclusion or their exclusion. Uh -huh. um, and we've been at this for many, many, I would say decades, since the 70s. The church, every four years, gets into a discussion. And I have been part of those conversations. And now they name a special conference that is just for that, for one topic mm. only. And it's done, you know, to great expense, you know. I have to say that one of the things that I still experience as difficult is having people talk about me. And I take it personally. Because it is personal. Like, you know, it's not, they're not talking, when you're talking about homosexuality, it's not a topic. It's a human being, you know, so, and I'm here. So people want to speak to it as if you're not there, yeah. you know, and that is very, very difficult because you have to keep raising your hand and say, hello, I am here. Mm -hmm. It's not an abstraction. There are bodies in this place. And I'm using the I, but of course, it's not just I. It's like, we are here. Yeah. There's, you know, tons and tons What and you're tons. saying is, sorry, I'm just going to interrupt for one second. No this, this idea, people have this with, um, in general, in a lot of different conversations about religion, about race, about sex. Mm -hmm. People talk about how, oh, it's just a political thing. It's not political. It's personal. Yes. Because it, it affects people personally. And that's something that yes. we, yeah. And some people can even include other human beings, supposedly, but in a tokenist way. So they're there. But they're not really fully there. They don't yeah. really want you fully there. Yeah. So, and every time you become more fully there, it's like, whoa, don't bring that mm -hmm. here. It's like, you mean don't bring me here? Mm -hmm. Then why did you ask me to come? When you speak your story, there's, it seems very, this idea of you having God and you having religion doesn't seem to have been an issue for you, even as a gay person. It felt like the gayness, mm -hmm. you thought maybe I should cure it, but then you got peace mm -hmm. with it. Have you ever had struggled with faith? thinking that this is not, you know? So I have a lot of theological growth in my life, uh -huh. but I've never, I've never ceased to believe that everything is connected, which it's is my best definition, which is my best definition of God. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I've never, I never stopped. I just cannot. I mean, it's like, it's so obvious to me. It's like, of course everything is connected. So you mm -hmm. being gay and everything is connected, there's no problem. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so this, right. So we think, I guess the problem, thank you for naming it that way, because like, the problem was to see the gayness as part of the connection. As part of the connection. Yeah. The other formula that also blesses me a lot, and I've had this for a while, is as it was in the beginning, it's now, and it will be forever. And it's, it hit me one day, just like, like, just hit me. It's like, oh, when we say eternal life, every time the word life is used, it's the life that always was, always is, and always will be. But it's not like just my life. It's the life that always was, always is, and always will be. You know, I always say in workshops, you cannot go to Beethoven and say, oh, I love you, I praise you, I adore you, but I hate your symphonies, <laughs> and I despise your quartets, and your sonatas make me puke. You can't say that. And if gayness and the trans experience and all of these things are what God created, you cannot say, I worship you, oh God, but I just hate you, the trans people that you create. Uh -huh. You can't. You know, yeah. there's a contradiction in there, which means that you really still do not understand what the real praise of God is. Uh -huh. And my, my work for life, is like this is my calling in life, is to call the church back to these deeper understandings. Is this along the lines that you tell people struggling with their sexuality and with their uh, relationship to God, religion, yeah. church? Yeah, yeah. 
Well, I think the community, it's all important. You know, I believe that salvation and healing really only happen in community. And so the first thing that I advise people or that I, you know, try to point them towards, because it's, I can only share what helped me also, you know, is you need to find a community where you, where, where you can grow, where you can heal. So this is difficult because often, and this was the case with me, we are very faithful to the communities that we are in. Mm -hmm. Enter a queer virtue, the virtue of creating family of choice, mm -hmm. you know? That doesn't mean that you reject your family, but it's that you create a, a community, a family of choice, mainly a place where you can heal. So for friends who are in very oppressive situations, I say, you know, depending, you need, a, you need to create a space. And by the way, what, this conversation that I'm having with you is the beginning of that space. We're already, you're already yeah. creating it just by, we are creating it. Yeah. But it needs to grow, it needs to go bigger. And in some cases, it may mean that you need to let go of some other stuff. In other times, you can have as many lives as you wish. Please do not, I don't believe in that, that like everybody has to be out yeah. now, immediately. It's a process. And by the way, even those who are like super out, there's also always a closet in there. The, yeah. You know, there's always a challenge. And if you don't have it, somebody was going to build it for you. Uh, so, you know, yes. so it's yeah. like, we have to let yeah. go of the arrogance of like, well, I am out, I'm proud, and yes. you are not. It's like, no, yeah. different moments. Now, all of us need to be in a journey, you know, forever, mm -hmm. basically. That's the beauty of this life that always was, always is, and always will be. It's, it's like a never-ending, amazing journey. Other than that... It's so different for each person in each context. I, I had the privilege of traveling to Africa a lot. And I would go there and teach. And invariably, in every time that I went, at least one person would come out to me. And either a pastor, a lay person, a district superintendent. Then come some of the ethical pieces. The church is really very bad about talking about sexuality, but even worse about talking about sex itself. Mm. Like, so it's, it's bad with sexuality, with so even with heterosexual sex, mm -hmm. it's like the the ethics of the church are so core, and they call them biblical, which are completely unbiblical. If you want to look for like models for sexuality in the Bible, for the expression of sexuality in the Bible, if you follow the Bible in terms of of of, of engagements, it will be a disaster, mm -hmm. you know, because it's. But people, you know, you don't hear much preaching around masturbation, for example. In the same way, by the way, they don't hear much preaching about menstruation mm -hmm. or menopause. Mm -hmm. You know, those are things that are such a part of life, really, yeah, such a yeah. part of life, that we, we still, and my sense is that we're, we'll get there, you mm -hmm. know. So a lot, of, a lot of the work that I have to do uh, or that, I, that, that I'm blessed to do, it's to go to that ethical place and to help people figure out, so what is ethical? And what is ethical in this situation? That somebody that comes to you that is gay and that's part mm -hmm. of the, you're just saying this is this is part of your life. This is part of life in general, mm -hmm. right? So church, if that's part of your life, you don't need to get rid of that. That's part of your you can continue walking in the same journey. Mm -hmm. You can find you can find community in there. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and and the same thing happens with for people who are not in any kind of religious mm -hmm. path. You mm -hmm. know, because they always ask me, "How do you reconcile being, you know, being right? gay or yeah. being Christian and stuff like that?" And I said, "Well, um, I'm still reconciling it. <laughs> you know, like it's, you know, it's a, it's a process." And then I share, I say, I believe actually that. Everybody has a spiritual path, even people who claim to have no spiritual path. They uh -huh. just name it differently. Uh -huh. You know, we just name it differently. And I usually try to find out what the spiritual path is and then, and then find ways of both affirming it and connecting it. Mm. So I'll give you an example of a person who says, well, you know, my spirituality is nature. I said, awesome, you know. And somehow I was able to connect this person with a person who does retreats in nature. So says, what about, can you consider doing this also in community? There's other people. And beware, so and beware, be of, easy solution, beware of easy solutions and fixes. Because mm. they're temporary and they can actually be quite violent, you know. 
sometimes we want to just like fix something and it's like no it's about healing something you know we talked when we first met about ptsd and, and the mm. gay experience you know which is something that it's so present to me as present as a conversation last week we talked about a person who in her church it's very gifted and she believes she has the gift for ministry mm -hmm. and and this person is her main collaborator mm -hmm. it's a very amazing musician but refuses to engage to call it ministry and only does it from a professional part mm -hmm. and 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 this friend of new friend of mine is frustrated because she sees the gift mm -hmm. finally after a lot of conversation you know it it rises to the surface that the person is gay, is partnered or married, and that that may be part of the story, mm -hmm. you know? And I go like, oh, okay, let's talk. And I share with her, because it's, yeah, but I, you know, the person is, but I accept the person, you know? There's full acceptance. And I said, yeah, but from you or from the whole congregation? And she says, well, you know, there's some people in the congregation that, no. And then I said, even if the whole congregation accepted the person, we cannot expect someone who's been hit in the head every day of their lives by the church mm -hmm. to all of a sudden, because one person or a community accepts them, to be completely fine and to say like, hallelujah, praise be to God, everything, you know, no. The, the, the wounds that are, 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 are there and are present and even, even more than that, the triggers for the trauma are surrounding us all the time. So, you know, in PTSD theory, basically you hear a sound and your body starts reliving the experience associated with that sound, with that smell, yes. with that sight, whatever. Yeah. So the church is filled with triggers yeah. for gay people. Yeah. Feel, I mean, all you have to hear is a, the sound of an organ. Yeah. The looking at pills, seeing a person with a with, with a stall, mm -hmm. you know, with, with liturgical vestments, hear hear the word preach or hear the word gospel or even hear the word Jesus mm. can trigger, you know, your trauma. And we need to be aware of that. Now that's not that cannot be the end of the conversation because there is healing. So a lot of my ministry engages, um, you know, particularly, I don't know if this term is proper, but we used to call them sexual minorities, LGBTQI persons, you know, minorities, maybe not good, marginalized, Margin uh, yeah. marginalized sexualities. Yeah. I love how our language continues to change and get mm -hmm. better. Marginalized sexualities and, uh, and expressions of gender take to from an understanding that there will be a trigger for the trauma. Mm -hmm. So some of the things that we do at the Church of the Village where I serve is we name it at the beginning of the service. And we say something like, we know that for some of you here, come, just coming to church is not an easy choice or a simple choice. That there's much of church that has hurt you. Mm -hmm. And so we're very glad that you've made the choice to come here. In private, it says, I when, we don't do this poorly, but in private, when I'm talking to people, it says, yeah, we hope that you have a wonderful time. We also know that it's going to be a difficult time mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because there's so much that can trigger the past. Yeah. But then all of those things can also heal the past. Right. In the ways that you engage in. Yeah. You know. And you do actually, you, in the church and village, you have specific things that you did. Absolutely. Absolutely. Tell be, us about that. Be, beyond naming it, for yeah. example, recently we went through a lot of thinking around pews mm -hmm. and what do they symbolize for people. And there were many reasons for it. But for me, one of the reasons was we need to create a space that doesn't hit people with, you know, from the very beginning, church, you know. The first project that we did was actually around the, um, the entrance of the church. You know, like uh, we call it the narthex is the, the term, the vestibule mm -hmm. to the church. You know, right before you enter the main sanctuary or the place where people sit. Amazingly, we had an artist, Jamie Jones, a queer artist in the church as a member. And she, we commissioned her to paint a beautiful tree that goes in between and that ends on a rainbow in the ceiling and that lands on the word love. Yeah. And it's such a different thing to enter now. Mm -hmm. I remember the first time that, you know, that, we, that I entered the church with this on and it was like, 
oh, oh, you know, complete it's a lightness of being. And then this summer, we decided to take all of our pews out. Mm. And for many reasons, again, it helps with our feeding program, which is amazing. Hope for our neighbors in need. That's a little plug there. And, and it, it helps also with uh, making it into a multi-purpose space so that others can use it if we want to do comp- But for worship, and on this topic of creating, eliminating triggers, where else do you see pews like in a church in yeah. modern times? Only in a church. Those are some of the little things that we do. We also watch our, our, for our language, the language we use, particularly around gender, mm-hmm. gender of a people's gender and gender identities, but also assigning God gender. You know, because if you keep assigning God a male gender over yeah. and over, yeah. how can you claim that women also have the image of God. Mm. If you do it binary all the time, male, female, male, female, well, yeah. well what about the non-binary folk? Yeah. yeah. You know. Yeah. So I love my pastor one time started calling God they. Mm-hmm. And it's so when I thought about it, it's like this is so of course. It's a trinity. It's like that's it's such a Christian statement to cut God they. So we use very expansive language uh-huh. for God. So I think we we're gonna wrap up. But the one thing I wanted to make, the comment that I wanted to make, because yes. I was raised Jewish and I'm not practicing, and I don't know too much about Jesus or about uh, Christianity or Catholicism, mm-hmm. but what's, what's yeah. very interesting is that the thing that I relate to a lot is when you say, we're all in this journey and we're all part of whatever is happening and we're just there. And, yes, and, and, you're, so, and you're inviting others through your podcast yeah. and so the way that to you, participate in life. Right, and yeah. the way that you explain that, the Trinity, yeah. is that that I get. So it's an yeah. interesting way, in a way I'm learning about Christianity <laughs> in just this idea of, like, just existing. I, I don't know. I, I thought it was it's yeah. beautiful. It is I have to say, like, it's very particular. Like, these kind of ideas, I, I, I was raised going to church every day, uh, having, like, commentary from, like, my family on my religion, and their ideas that they were never brought up to, to me, mm-hmm. you know? It was every, every, always brought up from, like, a very strange language. We had this person who said that, the Bible for her was kind of like uh, speaking to a foreign friend, uh-huh. and yeah. it was how like I was like raised. And so so, it's like an aha moment that I, I'm having talking with mm-hmm. you and getting all this yeah. this feedback on on mm-hmm. words and language that is 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 really live. But they just like took it away from us. Not only as queer people, but uh, not only as queer people, but as like. It's like as humans wanting mm. to make it this kind of like unapproachable language that's mm. so far from us. And it's all about, po- because when you do that, you gain power. So it's, it, this is a power struggle, really. Jesus surrounds intentionally by like all of society. Mm. But, that's, it's, but, that's, but then we don't follow that example in the church. What we do is we try to create like a special thing. If God is a father, a mother, a parent, a creator, how could it not be that the intention of God is the well-being of all of creation? Right. That's one of the How could it not be? Mm-hmm. That's one of the questions yeah. that I have, right? Because people say, even when there's language of we have to praise God and be God, there's a way sometimes that the language sounds like he, like this God is this person that needs to be lifted and praised. And, and megalomaniac. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, and like exactly. God is angry and God is, and I think, wait, if God, and now that you're saying, first I thought God is not a human being, God is this greater than this. But if God is a human being, he's a, um, an enlightened, uh, uh, worked on human being, right? So then why are we so focused on his feelings of anger when, when these are things that we should work on as human beings? Yeah. So sometimes when I like see that, I'm like, I don't understand. And I don't know what I believe in God, because I like I like the definition of connection. Yeah, and, 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 and um, with, with God who created you yeah. with the gift, which is a gift yeah. of desiring. Yeah. Desire is a gift. And there is a particular maleness that, yeah. that I am gifted to desire. Do you believe that God is that cruel? Yeah. Because, okay, I'm going to give you this gift so you can kill it. Uh, yeah. You know what I'm Guys, this was been this wonderful. Been thank, thank you so, so much for yeah, 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 yeah. Georgie. Can I call you Georgie? You can. Of, thank absolutely. you. Absolutely. Because I feel like I'm saying it wrong. Absolutely. No problem. No Georgie. problem. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you, it's been thank you guys very yeah. much. This has been another episode of The Forbidden Apple. Apple. I'm Melissa so. Weiss. <laughs> I'm Pilar Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful day.